everyone, this is Dr. Liz, and you're listening to Include with Dr. Liz. This show is about everyone, all people, including you. It's about people and their diverse lived experience in this world. I chat with guests to get to know them, their identities and their inclusion needs. So we all have an opportunity to understand how best to include them. So together, we can create a world where everyone thrives. Marla is a hardworking, strong, proud parent. Identifying as an ethnic minority with a chronic illness, permanent injury and disability, Marla is a passionate educator of healthcare professionals. And apparently, something people would be surprised to know is that Marla has social anxiety. So with that in mind, let's give her an extra warm welcome. Welcome, Marla. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Liz, for having me. I really appreciate being here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Now, I'm curious what area of education that you specialize in for healthcare professionals? I um, host events online and in person, and I provide them continuing education credits. They need continuing education credits in order to maintain their licensure and -hmm. certifications. So how did you come into being an educator of healthcare professionals? Because I think you were a nurse originally, weren't you? I was. Um, So first I was in nursing and then um, went back and got my master's. But unfortunately, I had a car accident about six years ago and um, an 18 wheeler rear ended me. And so that changed my life. Um, I went from running around an outpatient um, cancer center to being disabled overnight. So um, I tried to couple different things that didn't resonate with me. And so last year I was given the opportunity to run a continuing education business. And this has just really resonated with me. Um, Most of all, I just love being around my peers. And the other thing that I love is being able to influence patient care and outcomes. I mean, you know, when I was a nurse practitioner, I could directly do that, but now I can indirectly do that through education. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thrilled for you that you're able to find somewhere that you could apply your capability, um, even if you weren't physically able to be on your feet all of the time. So tell me what it's like to go from being the healthcare provider to being the patient. It's horrible. Um, you know, I just didn't realize how powerless patients feel until I became a patient myself. And, you know, we hear about the statistics about how women complain of pain and they're not listened to, or especially how, you know, ethnic women complain of pain and aren't listened to. But, you know, when you're a provider, you kind of hear those statistics and you go, okay, I'm not part of the problem. Or you go, okay, that must happen somewhere else. It doesn't happen here. And then you become a patient and you're like, oh, that happens every day. Mm. I mean, that like literally happens every single day. So what is it that makes you feel helpless? Because really as a patient, you don't have any power. The providers have all the power, right? You're just kind of like at their mercy. You know, you go, you make an appointment, 
and you hope to get all your questions answered, you know, by this provider that really only has, you know, a little bit of time to rush in and rush out, you know, to see you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, really, you're at their mercy to, you know, ask your laundry list of questions and hope that, you know, you remember them all. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, I mean, if you have a great provider, great, but not all providers are people, people. Mm-hmm. Right. So some of them kind of brush you off. And I mean, that's not to be ugly. It's just what happens. I imagine that that experience would make you a much better healthcare provider. And then in your case now, as an educator, how do you pass that on to the people that you work with now? That is part of my uh, mission is to, you know, teach other providers, you know, how it feels to be a patient. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they won't just brush off their patients, you know, I mean, I understand that there's, you know, a time limit and, you know, there's requirement by insurance people, you know, I understand all of that, but, you know, there has to be a better way to do patient care. I mean, there just has to be to where patients don't feel so helpless. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there has to be a better way to do patient teaching also. Like, for example, a lot of patients feel like they have to do exactly what what their doctor says, regardless of if it costs too much or, you know, if it's something they don't agree with or, you know, whatever. But because I do have access to resources and I do, you know, have medical knowledge, then, you know, I'm able to ask questions. I'm able to, you know, be like, okay, well, that medication costs too much. Is there another alternative? Mm. Um, You know, it's things like that that gives, really gives me an advantage. Now, before we get too deep into this, because I want to start talking about your identities and how they form who you are and your experience in this world. There was a survey that you completed in advance of today and of the big long list of identities, I think you ticked six. What were they? Yes, they were six. So I identify as a female um, and also as a working parent and a primary caregiver to my nine-year-old. He turns 10 next month. (laughs) And um, also I'm African-American. Um, as I mentioned, I have a disability due to my car accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of flows into the other one, which is a permanent injury due to the accident. And then um, chronic illness, which is chronic pain due to the accident. But also I have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's another one that I have, high blood pressure and something else that I can't think of right now. <laughs> so to add to the chronic illness. I want to actually point that out for people as well, that lots of us actually have chronic illnesses and conditions that we live with every day. And because we've been able to get to a place where we don't let it define us, um, we've found ways to mitigate around it and live our lives, we actually mostly don't identify with it. So that's why you can't just recall some of them. You're like, well, oh, what is it? Um, Because I know that if I was to go through a tick box, I do have a chronic illness, but because it's not front of mind for me, because I don't let it define me, I go, what is that? I know that I have one. (laughs) So um, I like to highlight that for people, that we don't always identify with those things that make us who we are. We just see them as us, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. It's something that you live with every day, so you just kind of forget about it. Yeah, it's like the colour of your hair. 
It just is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mine's changing. (laughs) The the temples are turning grey, Marla. (laughs) I've been grey for a long time, so I I can understand that. (laughs) The evolution and the privilege of ageing. You did touch on that um, there's this combined experience for you in healthcare or receiving healthcare, right? There's the the female experience. Then for you, you were talking about the ethnic or the person of colour experience as a female. So we're now talking about the compounding effect. And then when we start talking about adding the other parts of you, if we think about chronic pain and like you were saying about they don't believe you or they think that you're exaggerating and the longer it goes on, the worse it gets and so on and so forth. So if you look at the whole of you now, how has that become a barrier or something that had to be overcome for you? Mostly it was a barrier that I had to overcome with my own family. You know, to look at me, I don't look like, quote unquote, something is wrong with me right? You know, I look perfectly fine. It was hard or it still is hard for them to wrap their mind around the fact that I'm disabled. And especially with the fact that I have a master's degree, you know, that I can't, you know, work a quote unquote regular job. (laughs) So um, that was something that took me honestly years to get over that I'm still really working on um, because their disbelief was really painful. You know, I mean, I had to deal with the providers questioning whether or not I was really in pain, but they were strangers. Mm. But having to deal with your own family questioning whether or not you're really in pain, that's a whole nother hurt. You know, women are supposed to be strong and, you know, historically, you know, black women are supposed to be, you know, really strong. We're supposed to kind of, you know, just keep on going and, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, when you're hurt, you're hurt. And if you don't take care of yourself, how are you supposed to take care of other people? And I had at that time a three-year-old. So, I mean, I had to stop and take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And actually the positive thing that has come out of this accident is that, you know, I'm able to teach my now nine-year-old is that it's okay. Self-care is okay. You know, you shouldn't feel guilty about self-care. Let's hypothesize. So if I was one of your family members, whether we're going back a couple of years or now, you choose the time frame. What would you need from me to feel supported? What could I do? I would need positivity. I would love for somebody to ask, you know, what they can do to support me. For example, I can't clean my house. Like I I really need a housekeeper to clean my house. Mm. But sometimes I can't afford that. So I just kind of do the best I can. Mm. But, um, you know, having a friend or a family member just come over to help me clean my house would mean so much to me. And that doesn't cost anything. Mm. But again, they don't see that. I don't look like something's wrong with me. They could put aside that physical assumption and listen to my needs when I ask. (laughs) Um, That would be so helpful. I want to now think about when you're working as a nurse practitioner, and you suddenly find yourself 
in a different physical state. Um, was it really impossible to go back to being a nurse? And if so, why? It was because of consistency. Because I don't know how I'm going to feel one day to the next. Mm-hmm. Like um, this week has been a rough week. Um, I've had a lot of back pain. I had a migraine earlier mm. um, because of the weather. The winter is really hard for me. Okay. Something about the atmospheric pressure, the cold. Um, it, it's a really hard time. Okay. But, you know, one day I can feel great, which is another thing that's hard for people to grasp. And then the next day, you know, my back is not going to cooperate. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have a back stimulator. I have a device in my back that tricks my brain into thinking that I'm not having pain. Right. And sometimes it doesn't always work as, as well as it should. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wish it did. I'd love to have more good days than bad. Yeah. But, you know, you have to be consistent on jobs. I can't get a regular teaching job and be consistent. Or, you know, I can't go back to being a nurse practitioner or even a nurse on morphine. I mean, you know, that impairs your judgment. Mm. You know, would you want your provider taking some heavy duty drugs? And, you know, I, I I mean, I wouldn't. So did you receive any support or people providing opportunities or any, I mean, anything to assist you transitioning into a new career or out of the role and job that you had? No. <laughs> okay. The expression, <laughs> the expression says it all. So knowing that they didn't, what would have been the ideal? What could someone have done as an employer, as a colleague, a manager, to support someone like you when you actually probably legally can't do a job anymore, like you said, for example, on heavy pain meds, but you've still got all this capability. So what could they do to transition you to something else and support you? Looking at it solely from my side and being totally selfish, um, you know, my answer would be um, to be flexible, you know, offer flexible hours, um, offer work from home, um, and not have hard deadlines. But thinking from a business point, you know, you, can you function as a business like that? Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, that that's why, you know, I decided to work for myself, mm. um, you know, so that I could offer the same things to myself. You know, being on disability, that is was just not my goal. I mean, I put myself through school. And, you know, I thought I was going to have a better life for me and my son. I'm a single mom. I don't get any, you know, support from his dad. And, you know, I I was going to make a better life for me and my son. And then not, you know, being able to and ended up on disability. This has just been really discouraging. I also recognize that organizations at the end of the day need to make sure that they're profitable because that's why they exist. But they do exist because people work in them. So I do hear you understanding the difficulties for a business to support um, people's needs, but people need to be supported. And I hear you about the flexibility, um, you know, and and sort of just being adaptable to human needs doesn't just benefit someone with a disability or with chronic pain. It helps people that's a 
single parent or even just a working parent. It helps people to have aging parents um, because they have to go and visit them. Um, it helps for people that want to, I don't know, go to the gym in the afternoon um, and start work really early because that's their body clock. I want to give you permission to believe that individuals, including yourself, deserve some accommodations and some flexibility and for everyone listening as well. Um, so don't be afraid to ask because I think that's one of those things that organisations are currently in a position where they don't yet offer it so much as that if you ask for it, you might they might actually say yes. I absolutely think that it's vital that organisations provide employees a safe space and what I call a safe space to do what they need to do, uh, which sounds very general. But what I mean is a safe space where they could lie down to rest their back, where they could go and take their diabetes medication, that they could go and pray, or they could go and take time out because they're, they were triggered by something in the workplace. Um, there are so many benefits to creating a quiet, safe space for people um, that it's not something that's unusual or funny to, to ask for. So I wanted to highlight that for people as something really practical to do. Okay. And actually, you know, the, the bigger companies do that, don't they? Like Google and and Microsoft and don't they have like restrooms? Some of the big ones do. And I've been in some of them. They're quite overwhelming, in fact. There's a lot in there. But I don't want the knowledge of these really fancy safe space rooms to be the barrier to providing one. They do not have to be a huge investment. They just have to feel comfortable and safe. You talked about how your experience working in healthcare meant that you already had knowledge that you could use to advocate for yourself in getting your healthcare needs met. Let's extract that from your identity and just look at you um, as a as a person without that healthcare experience. For someone like that, what do I don't know whether it's hospitals or healthcare providers or whomever, what can they do to provide better access and better knowledge to people so they can self-advocate for their healthcare needs? I think options is the best thing to do. For example, most recently, I'm helping my family um, with the placement of um, one of our elder um, relatives, and he is currently in a skilled nursing facility. And so when the skilled nursing facility said that he needed to go somewhere else, um, meaning um, he either needed to go to hospice or home care, because he was in the room during that meeting, they didn't even mention hospice. They only mentioned home care. And the reason why they didn't mention hospice is because they didn't want to discourage the patient from having hope. Mm. But it was an option. Mm. You know, it's not fair that you decided not to give him the option just because you didn't want to withhold hope. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, like, you, know, you it, need to provide. Yes, 100%. Yeah, you need to provide options whether you want to or not. I don't care what your opinion is. Like, provide options. And you're right. That assumptions um, is really important. Someone mentioned that to me the other day in another episode around 
she was in a job. She wasn't offered a promotion because they assumed that because of her age, she's likely to have children soon, so wouldn't want to travel in a job. So, it, that, I mean, completely different example, but that's where assumptions yeah. can get in the way. Yeah. 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 All right, I want to go back to something that you said around the expectation that women of colour, particularly black or African-American in the United States, there is an expectation or a stereotype for their being strong. How does that impact you? Previously, um, you know, I tried to live up to that. I was hesitant to disclose that I um, have been through therapy. You know, I, I say it to friends, you know, just, you know, kind of like offhandedly. But, you know, I'm not a, I'm not ashamed of therapy at all. You know, I mean, I talk about therapy, you know, all the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, recommend that to patients, you know, and everything. But, you know, when it came to me, you know, just saying that out to, you know, I don't know how many people, it, it was scary. Mm. And I was just like, you know, th- there's just, there's no reason for that because th- there's no shame in it. Yeah. And, you know, therapy has gotten me through so much. Yeah. Me too. So much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you highlight that representation is so important, right? If you had people before you openly communicating and sharing that they were going through therapy, that they rely on therapy to be who they are, it would have started to, you know, demystify it and destigmatize it. So well done on being the change that we need to see. Thank you. Um, and more power to you. I tell you, I, there's parts of life that I would never have got through had I not had therapy for that. And for anyone listening, I am permanently on antidepressants, uh, SSRIs, and it makes me a better human. I can function so much better in this world because of it, and thank goodness for modern medicine. Thank you. (laughs) Me too. Thank goodness for modern medicine. (laughs) And I don't think it's anything to shy away from. And there are times when people need to be medicated, and there are certainly times when people don't need to be medicated. But in my case, I do, and I am grateful for it. You were saying about the vision that you have for your life, for you and your son. If we think about the world at large, right, the the, the community that you operate and function within, what do you think would help people like you to achieve their dreams? It is difficult um, to get anywhere um, when you're, disabled, especially by an accident or something of that means, because usually when that happens, you know, you're on social security. And so, you know, you don't have much money, right? And so you're limited in what you're able to do. I just, I wish that there were more grants for disabled people who like wanted to be an entrepreneur or if there are that they were more readily available or more you know more advertised or something Mm. um or you know more support groups for people who you know are disabled um 
you know, and not only that, like my, um, my son has anxiety as well. And so, you know, it's been difficult, like getting him plugged in. This is our first year in, in public school. So it's been difficult getting him plugged in to the right resources, um, especially because again, I have limited income mm-hmm. and, you know, but I don't have limited enough income to like apply for state assistance. Like I'm like in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's a common right? story, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We, we can't do enough to make money. Right. But we need to make money so that we can better our lives. It, it, it It's like you're just kind of stuck. Mm. You know, people are like, well, do something about it. OK, well, what am I supposed to do? You know, what what can I do? It's, it's just it, it's hard. Mm. It's, I, I, I don't I don't know what the answer is. You know, so. I think what you highlight for me and I think is worth all of us thinking about is it's such a common story about people that are just outside the brackets for additional financial support. But giving you money probably at this point isn't what is more helpful. Right now it's probably funded accelerator programs, you know, for for those that are self-employed and um, on the entrepreneurship journey, providing accelerator programs, mentorship, training, introductions, so on and so forth to give you access to and the skills to actually increase your success. There are a couple of accelerated programs that I would love to get in, mm-hmm. but their cost is just, you know, it, it's just too high, mm-hmm. you know, for, for me to, you know, even think about getting into. So yes, I, I totally agree. Accelerated programs or even, you know, a way to, you know, like financial programs, you know, have us think about other outside of the box ways maybe that we haven't thought about to put away money or yeah. teach us how to do stocks and stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah. So financial literacy training, um, but even raising money to help you with your business, right? So it's not always just raising millions of dollars um, from venture capitalists. It could be that there could be community grants and lending schemes. There could be crowdfunding even. Um, so there's lots of ways that uh, I think advocacy programs, but also organizations focused on entrepreneurship could look at servicing a market that perhaps isn't already being supported. I know that we've talked about the feeling of exclusion from your family because of their lack of belief in your lived experience. Um, and then you've got the lived experience of not being able to work in the profession that you're skilled in um, initially, but then transferring into self-employment. Knowing that whole experience of Marla and while unique to you, probably isn't unique in the world. There'll be other people like you. So what advice would you give to someone that is wants to support someone like you, help someone like you? What could we do? Believe in the person and reassure them that you do believe in them and encourage them to believe in themselves. And so it might seem like an obvious question. What don't you want them to do? Be critical. You know, um, point out everything you're doing wrong. Um, Point out your mistakes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Point out you know, what you can't do, um, you know, just be positive and point out the things you can do. 
Um, yeah, and just be encouraging. Mm. Help, help be the solution. Yeah, okay. Instead of point out the problems. So tell me about this business of yours that you're working on. What are you doing? I'm planning events, which is just so much fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, inviting nurse practitioners and nurses and physician assistants. And, um, you know, the best part for me is that these events are, are small. So, you know, I get to know people by face and name. Um, and then I get to talk about topics that are like relevant to current events. Mm. And, you know, like I said, you know, educate um, the healthcare providers about, you know, how patients feel. Marla, we're going to include all of the links and how people can get in contact with you in the description of the podcast. Um, so I want to thank you for your time today, your insight and your vulnerability in sharing your experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.